From across the street of the Texas State Capitol in Austin, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker with today's guest, Congressman Lamar Smith. And here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge. It's a beautiful day in Austin, Texas, and we're honored indeed to have Congressman Lamar Smith in our studio. Welcome, sir. Trey, good to be with you and Charlie and your guest as well and, and listeners, and it is a beautiful day in Austin. Always nice to be here. It's always good to be here. <laughs> so you have a very uh, long and distinguished resume, and I'm going to, to get our listeners up to speed, I want to just give them a little bit bit of background on yourself. I mean, I could honestly, I think, talk about your background for the next 30 minutes, oh, no, but we're, no. we're a little short on. we got to move along here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't spend much time on this. Yeah. So, Congressman, correct. you were born in San Antonio, Texas. Correct. You are a graduate of Yale University and the SMU School of Law in Dallas. Correct. Uh, you were elected to the Texas House of Representatives, representatives in 1981. You also served two terms as a Bear County Commissioner. You were elected to Congress in 1986, and your district covers parts of Bear, Travis, Comal, Hayes counties, and all of Bandera, Blanco, Gillespie, Kendall, Kerr, and Real counties. So far, most, so far, so good, yes. I, I haven't lied yet. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, th- and that's some of the most beautiful country in Texas. So it is. Congratulations Hill, on having an incredible district. Yeah, Hill Country is, is uh, beautiful. You are cur- you've been married since 1992 to your wife, Beth, and you have a son and a daughter. Correct. What are your son and daughter up to these days? Well, I have a son who's an architect and a daughter who in June is starting med school. It'll be her third career. She went to UT Law School and then has been working for a solar energy startup and decided that she wanted to take good care of four-legged and two-legged animals and specifically humans and is headed to med school. Uh, Tobin, my architect, is married, and I just have a a seven-and-a-half-month-old a first grandchild, a grandson oh, by the name of Ramsey. So I, I come back virtually every weekend from D.C., and so I check in with Ramsey usually every Sunday. So it works nice. out nice. That's the good job, isn't it, being it a grandpa? Is. Yeah, you don't have no discipline. You get to spoil him. But why won't they trust me by myself with him yet? I just don't understand <laughs> that. And they, Do you uh, want to be? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, everything but the diapers. Yeah, Care, yes, yeah careful what you wish for. <laughs> yes. Their second child, it'll... It'll be completely different. I, I've got two little ones, and the first one goes through an amount of sanitation yes. and and protection that is a little excessive. Yes, but it, it's it's universal. I've heard that about the second. <laughs> I can't wait. No, that is true. I keep trying to figure out how to skip kids and go gra- straight to grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> That's a million dollars. That. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, also in our studio today is Alice Nainsworth. She is an intern who is working for. She's a Political mm. communications major at the University of Texas. Sounds dangerous yeah. to me, but good. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to have yeah. here. So she is our producer, our research director. We wouldn't have a show but for Alice. And oh, so how nice. Yes. Glad you're in the studio again. Thank you. And I do have a question for you. Um, yes. So you've had an amazing uh, career in politics, as we've kind of portrayed before. Um, you were ranked the most effective member in Congress um, by a study um, that produced from UVA and Vanderbilt. Um, what is your motivation for running in the first place? Why did you decide mm, to mm. enter into this career? Well, a couple of things. In the interest of full disclosure, I have to confess to a couple of things. One is that uh, that study 
that came out by uh, Vanderbilt UVA was a total shock and surprise to me. <laughs> I didn't know I was uh, even in close to being designated that. I thought I, you were about to tell us you paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Which is effective. Uh, yeah, I'm just thus say, making Had I known dreaming. about it, that would have been uh, certainly an option. But uh, I actually had never even heard of the study before it came out. And now I think it was probably the most important study conducted that particular year. No, no, that's not true. But I'm grateful for the, uh, for the little compliments coming along the way. I might say also, in the interest of fair disclosure, Trey mentioned that I'd been a member of the Texas House. Uh, I actually, I believe, hold the record for shortest-term Texas state representative in, in Texas history. I was elected in a special election in December. Uh, the legislature met in, G in January uh, the next month and right. redistricted me out of my district. So oh, you made I, that much of an impression I, yeah, early I, yeah, on. I was here a few weeks. <laughs> I think I can't remember what I cost cast seven or nine votes and I was gone. But nevertheless, I, I was here for the short period of time. But now, Allison, to go back to your question, what got me into politics? Uh, first of all, I was not a campus politician. I wasn't uh, uh, a 12-year-old who wanted to be president of the United States. I sort of got into it involuntarily. When I went back to my home of San Antonio after law school, I was minding my own business, quite frankly, and uh, someone said, uh, why don't you run for precinct chairman? You're interested in politics or history or whatever. And uh, I said, well, what's that? I didn't even know what a precinct chairman was. And so I got involved and ended up running for precinct chairman in 1976. And uh, um, I loved the position. You get to meet all your neighbors. You only have to work one day every two years. You put on the <laughs> primary election and had a good time doing that. Uh, uh, that, there's a longer story there. I, I had a contested race. I've never worked so hard in my life to win an election, and I wouldn't be in Congress today had I not been a precinct chairman because after I got elected to a lot of people's surprise, including the county chairman, I got a call from the county chairman who said, who are you? It was just <laughs> out of some movie. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, on the basis of your race, and I know you knocked on every door, and you sent out mailings, you ran like you were running for president. And I said, I didn't want to lose my first race, and I'd taken off one of my two weeks vacation and, and uh, knocked on every door at least once or twice. And so he said, I'd like for you to be executive director of the local party in charge of, what else, precinct organization. So I did that mm -hmm. for a couple of years. He retired. Then I became county chairman and then the short-term state rep, county commission in Congress. But I, again, if I hadn't been a precinct chairman, that um, all those steps would not have occurred, and I doubt that I would be in Congress today. But as far as the motivation goes, once you get in office, believe me, if you don't love people, uh, you wouldn't do what you're doing. And on one on one level or the not, you uh, or not, you just have to love people. You either need to love passing laws that you think will benefit either people who live in the state or people in the local district or people across the United States in the case of Congress. Um, but there's also another level of appreciating other people, and that is when you help people with constituent service. So I have my office is split. I have about as many uh, staff members in D.C. as in Texas. And in D.C., we're working on legislation and my committee assignments. But back home, we're helping individuals who walk in the office who have had problems dealing with the federal government and who need help. It could be a veteran looking to get benefits that are rightfully theirs. It could be someone else not getting a Social Security check. It could be someone else with an immigration problem. That's more and more frequent. And uh, so when you are getting someone their back taxes, I mean, you can change lives on an on a, on a individual-by-individual individual basis when you talk about constituent service. But again, if you don't love people, you wouldn't love that kind of work. So I think that's, I hope, at least part of the motivation for people in public office. Well, um, you mentioned your committee, and to me it sounds like you're a, an actions, not words kind of guy. How does that translate to being the chair of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee in 
Tell us about that committee and what does it do? Sure. What are you working uh, on well, is, is it, the future in space? It is a great committee. It's my uh, second committee to chair. I chaired the Judiciary Committee before I chaired Science, Space, and Technology. Science, Space, and Technology, we oversee agency budgets totaling about $42 billion, but they include NASA, Department of Energy's Research and Development Budget, uh, in the Environmental Protection Agency's research and development, uh, National Science Foundation, that's five or six billion dollars right there, uh, and then some other smaller agencies. But it's a committee, I often say that if we rename the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, we would rename it the R&D Committee in Congress because 80% of those funds are, are an investment in research and development, and that's the future of America. That's, you know, we're, that's creating the new technologies that will lead to an increase in our standard of living or create jobs. Um, it's, it's the R&D that is going to lead to the breakthroughs that I think affect every American. So I love being chairman of that sort of forward-looking uh, committee in a lot of respects. Uh, we obviously have jurisdiction over NASA. That's our biggest uh, budget item, $17 billion there. That can benefit Texas, but it can benefit all Americans as well. Uh, just to talk about space real quickly, uh, the most popular museum in America isn't an art museum in California or even in D.C. The most popular uh, museum in America is the Air and Space Museum in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Very few people realize that, but people are fascinated by this subject. I mean, who cannot be? You go outside at night and you look at the stars or the moon and maybe you can identify a planet or a constellation. Uh, but uh, it's what we had in common with our ancestors all the way back, yeah, staring up there going, what is all that? The con the connection. Everybody, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody's looking at the same thing, basically, as far as human history goes. So uh, that the space is a fascinating subject. The, the science, we, uh, we have jurisdiction over STEM education. And believe me, if that's anything that I would want to preach about, it would be to encourage our young people to think about those subjects. Think if they have any interest or inclination towards a science, technology, engineering, math, or computer science uh, field, stick with it. Um, you'll be able to write your own job description someday. And so that's it, science, technology, um, I mean, I mean, science, space, and technology, to go through those three components shows what we've been doing and why it's really fun being a chairman of that particular committee. How's that committee going to work with our new president, President Trump? Um, I think we'll work fine with this president, uh, to tell you the truth. I've just this last week, as a matter of fact, visited with both the uh, new Secretary of Energy, former Governor of Texas, Rick Perry, Who? and I also, <laughs> <laughs> also visited with Administrator Pruitt, head of the uh, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency that we had jurisdiction over as well. So I talked yeah. to both of them this last week, and so they all and, answer to you. And no, well, uh, end of the day, kind of. Let's just let's just say that when you do have jurisdiction over nine billion dollars of the Department of Energy's R and D budget, yes, you they know uh, who you, you are. Yeah, <laughs> you, you do want to get along, but in the case of Rick Perry, I've obviously known him for many years, so that's nice to have another Texan in D.C. Absolutely, and and Pruitt is an impressive person as well. He was Attorney General in Oklahoma before right. going to the EPA and did incredible things there. Interestingly, sued the EPA quite a bit several times. Right, yes. so now he's in charge of reform. And yeah, and you're uh, six months ago, interestingly enough, we had him as a witness before the Science, Space, and Technology Committee when he was AG in Oklahoma, and then six months later, here he is, the administrator of the EPA. I, I will have to say, I was just really, really impressed uh, when we met last week. He is smart. He, he knows how to accomplish things, uh, and uh, he will be a really good administrator. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Congressman, uh, you've always been a very vocal uh, opponent of illegal immigration and been involved with that issue, and it's an issue that's been around forever. Um, in, as you well know, in 1986, President Reagan signed a bill, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, uh, which is criticized today for the amnesty portion of it. Right. Do you think we'll ever see 
comprehensive comprehensive immigration uh, form in my life. Boy, lots going on there. Let me preface my answer by saying I think that immigration is the most complex, uh, complicated, emotional, intractable, and uh, difficult issue that we deal with today because it impacts every aspect of most Americans' lives. So nothing could be more personal in, in a lot of ways. Also, as background, let me say that the United States of America admits legally one million people every year. Uh, that's about as many as every other country combined. There's nobody close. No, combined wouldn't, not to interrupt, but I think about places like China. They call themselves the, the second largest economy, but they don't take any refugees. Yeah, no, yeah. None. No, yeah. None. No and there's so many huge economies that don't take any but um, it's always pointed out how we're doing too little. It's never enough. Yeah. And I just feel like I'm glad you pointed out that it is still a million people a year. There's Every, all over the world people are coming here to better their lives. Yeah. They're doing it the right way. Exactly. And, and when you admit a million a year, as, as we do, I think that gives us the right and the responsibility to say there's a right way and a wrong way to come into the country. And the right way is to apply, get in line, be one of those one million people like many of our ancestors uh, were, but don't jump to the head of the line, don't violate the laws, don't take advantage of American you know, taxpayers and compete with American workers for scarce blue-collar jobs. Uh, come in the right way, and we You will. might be called intolerant, though, if you said that. That <laughs> makes sense to me, but yeah. I, it bugs me that tolerance has been kind of bastardized. Like, yeah. it, all of a sudden, tolerance is you have to allow um, you have to get run roughshod over. Yeah. Many in the media don't make any distinction between legal and illegal. And we need to emphasize come in legally and you'll be rightfully welcomed, rewarded, and I hope assimilated as, as well. And Trey, as far as what is, do we have comprehensive immigration reform coming up anytime soon? Uh, the answer is no. And, uh, and let me just say, and this is maybe a rule of politics, something I've learned over my years in Congress is that a member of Congress advancing legislation is almost never going to throw the touchdown pass. All you're going to do is grind out first downs at best. And the people, the members of Congress who want all or nothing, and who say, I want comprehensive 100% or not for anything, are going to get nothing. And that is why we have had nothing for the last eight years, is because people who want comprehensive immigration reform, which is oftentimes a euphemism for amnesty for 11 million people, uh, which I don't believe will ever happen uh, to begin with. But if anybody who wants any kind of immigration reform, uh, if all they do is come to the table and say it's everything I want or nothing, uh, again, it aren't going to get anything. But if we start advancing immigration reform piecemeal, bill by bill, we'll break the logjam. We'll probably get a lot, a lot more done than we would otherwise. And some changes I'd like to see is to make sure that our are sometimes scarce uh, American jobs go to those who are in the country legally, could be legal immigrants or could be citizens. And that gets into E-Verify, a program that's supported by 82% of the American people where you double check to make sure that people who are entitled to have jobs are legally in the country. Uh, Border security is one that is popular. Uh, I think giving a little bit more attention to immigrants who have the skills and education we need in America is better than just continuing to admit hundreds of thousands of people every year with no skills, no education. Uh, Yes, some can find jobs, many cannot. Uh, Many end up taking government benefits on one level or the other. 
but let's, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound familiar, but let's have an immigration policy that's in America's best interest. Uh, and it may not be the same policy that's in the best interest of other countries, but let's, sure. let's put our American workers first and American taxpayers first. Well, it certainly, seems like, it certainly seems like, you know, we've had this conversation about immigration reform for the past 25 years. I know Americans are frustrated. Texans are frustrated that nothing's been done. I feel like we finally have a president in Donald Trump who is willing to do something about it. What, what, what if the president were to call for a complete moratorium? on all immigration until there is comprehensive reform. Right. Well, by the way, that's been done before. In fact, it was done for a period of, I think, about 40 years in the early 1900s where we started admitting a million a year, and, uh, and all of a sudden people said, wait a minute, let's have a pause and allow those who are here to become assimilated rather than sort of clustering conclaves where they don't learn to speak English or uh, don't learn to appreciate America's exceptionalism, and sometimes you see that uh, around the country today. But uh, I don't know that we'll ever have that kind of a pause where we'd had virtually no immigration for 40 years. But it may well uh, be that we can cut back from that million figure. And maybe right now we're admitting um, most immigrants on the basis of family ties. It's called chain migration. And I'm all for family ties if they're immediate uh, you know, if you're talking about spouses or, uh, you know, um, non-adult children, maybe even the cases of some some parents. But when you start getting into uh, married brothers and sisters back home in another country, right. you're responsible for admitting individuals that you may never have met in your life. And yet it's called family reunification. And, you know, why are you what's where's the reunion if you're admitting right. individuals whom, whom you don't know? And is so, that what the, where the extreme vetting would come in um, that we hear about? Well, the, the vetting, particularly on refugees from far, foreign uh, from terrorist sponsoring countries, I think needs to be a lot better. I'm on the Homeland Security uh, Committee. And a couple of years ago, I asked the head of Homeland Security and I also asked the head of the um, FBI if, in fact, they could assure us that individuals who we were admitting as refugees from terror-sponsoring countries didn't have any connection to terrorist uh, organizations. And they said, no, we can't assure you that because we don't, we don't get access to their backgrounds. We don't know whether they've committed crimes. We don't know what organizations they've been a member of. So it's just a blank background. And yet the Obama administration counted that as screening people when all they came up with was a blank background. And that's not good enough no. uh, when you have individuals. And by the way, um, you know, we have uh, ISIS and the others saying out loud they're going to try to infiltrate the refugee program Absolutely. and get people into the country who will do us harm. Sure. If there's anybody that needs to be screened, uh, it's the refugees. Uh, the other thing is, and my figure's going to be a little bit off here, but the, you know, the typical profile of a refugee is actually a refugee family. It's a mother and father who have given up everything they have. They have small children. They've left their home behind. They've left whatever they have behind. Those are the genuine uh, needful cases where your hearts go out to them. You want to admit them as refugees. But so many of the refugees from terror-sponsoring country are, guess what, single young mm -hmm. males that don't fit the profile. And uh, we could be taking a risk that we don't need to take. Another thing about the refugee program, you have three kinds of immigrants. You have legal immigrants, illegal immigrants, and refugees. Refugees are the only category who basically get everything. Uh, they, When you are a refugee and you're admitted to the United States, uh, you get permission to have a job. You have access to every government benefit, local, state, and federal. So you are set up, and that's not true of other types of – it's not obviously illegal immigrants aren't – 
supposed to be compared to like a a cuban immigrant to a mexican immigrant one came from a place that was labeled um refugee rather than just an illegal uh border crossing that's why they're all all, you have all these central americans applying for refugee status because then they know they'll get all these benefits they're not real refugees Uh, they're not fleeing for their lives and another thing about refugees, te- a little bit technical here on the law, is that you're, if you pass through a country, uh, if you leave your country and go into a country uh, that is not threatening, uh, you're supposed to stay there. But we have all these refugees going through a whole lot of other countries just to get to the United States, and you sure. can guess what the reason might be now. Well, and at any given moment in time or history, <clears throat> probably 40% of the world is embroiled in some type of conflict or social yes. or political strife so just about anybody could be considered a refugee and it seems like a, a an exception to our immigration law that's going to swallow the rule yep uh, if yep. we if we think of the united states as a house <laughs> and we've got legal applicants at the front door filling out documents and standing in line we've got droves of people coming through the back door uh, yeah. f- across our southern border, and then we have refugees coming through the window. So, I mean, we, we, we I, could, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I mean, we could. We already have 324 million people in the United States. At what point do we have en- have enough people? Yep, and exactly. And by the way, uh, the open borders crowd who wants to either let almost anybody in who wants to come in or give amnesty legal status to everybody here illegally, can you imagine what would happen if we did that? How many tens of millions of people would suddenly pour into the country? They do these uh, polls um, around the world sometimes. And I think, I, last poll I saw, you had, if people could come to the United States, if, if we had an open border, you had like several hundred million people saying, I'll go to the United States if that's ever the case. So right. are we going to really be able to handle a double of the, doubling of the population if, if we had open borders? And the problem with open borders, of course, is you don't know who's coming in. You don't know why they're coming in. You don't know what they're going to do when they get here. Every country in the world, particularly every sovereign nation, needs to have secure borders, and, and we need to do a better job than we are now. Uh, the number of illegal immigrants has been going down for the last month or two. I think that's because we have a president who has said, I'm going to enforce immigration laws. But we still are going to have a couple of hundred thousand of people coming across our borders illegally every year, even now. Wow. So let's talk about that. This is a, a, an associated issue that we've been dealing with, and it's certainly an issue here in Austin, Texas, and that's one of sanctuary cities yes and we've had mayors across the country uh including austin including <coughs> travis county who have said we'll welcome illegal immigrants here we do not intend on uh, complying or or cooperating mm-hmm. with ICE or the federal government on enforcement of federal laws what can the trump administration do or what can congress do to claw back federal right. funds uh, from these cities one of the most incredible things i've ever witnessed uh, ever ever heard about is the idea of uh, elected officials sworn to uphold the Constitution, law enforcement officials sworn to uh, protect the safety of the residents of their jurisdiction, whether it be Travis County or, or the city of, of, of Austin or whatever, um, uh, taking positions, uh, initiating actions that they know invariably is going to lead uh, to crimes being committed against innocent Americans or, or innocent residents of their jurisdictions. Uh, we know for a fact that about a third of these individuals will be arrested again for serious crimes. So when Travis County releases 100 people, as they did recently, uh, we know that a third of them are going to victimize other people in the area. It could be anything from murder to sexual assault to robbery to burglary to... None of it good. DWI, none of it good. 
And to intentionally uh, release these individuals is sort of being an accomplice to the crime. It's, it's like being an accomplice to a massive jailbreak or something like that. Right. And there's really no choice here. Uh, and I say this because I have a little bit of a vested interest. The last major immigration reform bill that was actually enacted in law is one that I introduced in 1996. Well, guess what? Uh, one of our four major provisions was uh, requiring, mandating that localities uh, do coordinate with the federal government and, uh, and, and ban sanctuary cities. That's been the law since 1996. So it's just a question of enforcing the law. Right. I do not believe any elected official has the option of disregarding the law. If we get to that point in this country, uh, we are going to end up in chaos. We are going to lose our democracy. You have, even if you don't agree with the law, if that is the law, you abide by it. You can certainly try to change it. That's part of democracy. Uh, you can challenge it in court. You can get someone to pass a law that reverses it. You have all kinds of options that are legal. But don't no one, if, if we start allowing individuals, particularly law enforcement officials, uh, to disregard the law, I just don't know where that ends, or at least it's, it's not good. So um, sanctuary cities have no place in America, and we ought to be looking for ways to cooperate and to these are dangerous people. <laughs> these are people who sure. have been often times convicted of, of really, really violent crimes. And we're not going to turn them over to the federal government to send home. We're going to put them out in our neighborhoods and into our communities. Uh, I don't think that's a popular position to take. Right. Wouldn't want to be rude. No. <laughs> it, it's insane. It's insane. Uh, you know, one thing we noticed when we were doing our research on you, Congressman, is you founded the Media Fairness Caucus. Yes. And... It, you didn't do this last week. You didn't do it six months ago. You did it several years ago, but I think it's more important now than ever. Yes. Uh, tell us why you did that. I've actually founded two caucuses, the Border Security Caucus, which says secure the border before we do anything else in regard to immigration policy. The second is the Media Fairness Caucus, and that's just uh, that's a group of members who want to try to push back against media bias, and we're not for censorship in any form. We just want to remind the media and push back on the media uh, that they have almost a sacred responsibility to let the American people decide for themselves. Don't tell them what to think. I sometimes say that the greatest threat we face in America is a biased media because if the American people don't get the facts, then they can't make good decisions. And if the American people can't make good decisions, then our form of government, our democracy, uh, is in danger and we might lose it. Um, I, I think the essence of democracy is not just a fair press, not just a fair media, but also a balanced and objective media. Again, don't tell us what to think. Give us the information. Give us the facts. Trust the American people. They're smarter than you may think they are, but let them decide. Uh, and don't, you know, so much of newscast today, whether it be electronic or TV or radio or, or a newspaper, uh, most of it is editorials. They're, a lot of the media are promoting their either pet cause or have a political agenda or a personal agenda, and that's what they're pushing on the American people. No longer here's what happened or here's pro, you know, good and bad and pros and cons or whatever. And so I think uh, the media bias is as important an issue as, as we've ever had before. By the way, I'm not alone in this regard. Uh, Gallup uh, poll uh, shows that in its 46 years of polling, uh, the media now has the lowest credibility rating ever recorded. They're down in the teens. And people know that they're not being given, you know, objective information. They know the media is biased. And I think on one of the most recent polls, I thought even, even the 
uh, what by two to one, even the Democrats thought the media was biased. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, it's by the way, it's a very liberal bias. I, That's right. We need more That's conservatives right. to to give some balance, or we need the reporters to give both sides. But uh, you look at the president. Um, uh, we had a record set this year. Ninety six percent of journalist contributions went to Hillary Clinton. Ninety six percent. We've never seen anything yeah. that high before. Right. And we expect them to cover the Trump administration objectively and fairly. I just don't. Well, obviously, it's not happening. We have a media, national media now uh, trying to destroy the president, destroy his presidency, destroy everything about him. And at some point, the American people are either going to get tired of it, yeah. uh, where they already are concerning the uh, polls and, and how low the a reckoning, a reckoning, yeah, a reckoning. Is coming. Reckoning. Good. I like that word. You know where that word comes from? No, I don't. Uh, it comes from the uh, movie uh, White Tim- Oh, yeah, okay. Wider. We're going to have it's a like reckoning. A reckoning are coming. I like it. You know, Charlie and I have talked about this. One of the things that we think is, is a positive, I think there are many, but one of, one of the positive uh, results of this last election is the American public, as you just noted, realizes that there is media bias. And I'm sure you were in the same position a decade ago when I used to talk about media bias. People looked at me like I was crazy, right? And we now live in what I call a post-objective journalistic world. Oh, and that's, that's fine is because it, it makes people understand that everything that they read, everything that they hear on TV, they need to, be, they need to employ their critical thinking skills. Yes. Whether it's coming from Fox, CNN, or MSNBC, or the Wall Street Journal, you can't take it as the sacred truth. You have to put your thinking cap on. Right. And, right. and I think the more people do that, the better off we're going to be. Congressman, I, I've been told that your staff is standing outside Uh-oh. the studio kind of waving their hands frantically. Um, <laughs> a, as we mentioned before the show, we like to conclude each episode with a quote. Uh, we ask each guest to come with a quote. And interestingly, um, we, we always ask for a quote. Everybody comes with two quotes. Uh, so share with us what you like. <laughs> Well, I, I thought it was also more specific, possibly a Bible verse as well. We always uh, like those. Which made it easy. I didn't have to prepare uh, because I've been carrying two quotes around in my wallet for uh, years, if not decades. So it's not just for today. So you, you get what I carry around all the time. <laughs> to Let me start with the Bible verse uh, that is so, uh, in, I don't know, reassuring to me as much as anything else. It's from Psalms. Um, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If that doesn't make you feel better every day, I don't know what will. Sure. And then another quote has to do with the Science, Space, and Technology Committee that I chaired. It's a, fa- it's a quote by Sir Isaac Newton, considered to be the father of modern science. And uh, with apologies to Allison because of the reference to a boy here, I'm, gonna, I'm <laughs> going to add, uh, and, or girl, but uh, this is Isaac Newton. I was like a boy or girl playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Isn't that great? Wow. <laughs> so not only was he a scientist, he was a poet as well. Yes. Huh? yes. Very poetic. Yes. Congressman, we've, we've scratched the surface on a lot of issues, and, and I'd love to spend another hour with you. Uh, we know you don't have time today, but we welcome you back anytime. Look We'd forward like for to coming to come back. back. Thank and, you for uh, having me on. Thank you for coming. Thank, thank you, much. Congressman. Good to be with everybody. You have been listening to The Trey Blocker Show. Find all the episodes at TreyBlocker.com or check out your favorite podcast app.